as scary as this is, I find that I uh, am agreeing with Jimmy once again, and that is to say, I think you should be our lead worshipers too. I, I think that's a great plan of action. Um, uh, we uh, enlist your prayer. We um, one of <clears throat> there's one of the times of the year that I really enjoy and look forward to uh, with a great deal of anticipation is. Uh, each May, the staff goes off and spends the night together and has a staff retreat. We've got a little place that we found right south of town that's not uh, too long of a drive to get there. We're going to do that tomorrow. And our, I, you know, we, our wives and our spouses come and for supper, and then we send them off, and we just spend the night talking about uh, the ministry here at Grace. And it is just, it's such a sweet thing that our staff gets along the way it does, and we're going to do that tomorrow night and Friday. So pray for us, and... Uh, uh, we look forward to being together. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 3, and let me read you. <clears throat> oh, let's see. I, I think I'll just read you through verse 12. Uh, I think we'll get that far tonight. Maybe, maybe a little, uh, probably not verse 12. And then next week, we'll come back and wrap up the rest of that little paragraph through verse 20. And that's where we'll take off for the summer. And then in the fall, when we resume our study of Romans, we'll pick up at verse 21, and I can say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the, the, the great fun stuff, uh, at least in my opinion, starts in verse 21 of chapter 3, with that little conjunction, but now. <laughs> um, I, I think it was Luther who used to say, there is, there is much theology packed in conjunctions. And uh, the, the word uh, but, as you know, um, the one with one T, is a conjunction. So we'll, um, we'll get to that in the fall. But anyway, let me begin reading at verse 9, and uh, we'll read through verse 12. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have be together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Uh, and th with this section, Paul returns uh, and begins to draw a tighter uh, line of connection between his theme that he introduced in uh, chapter 1, verse 18. I read that to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What he's been trying to do for about a chapter and a half now is demonstrate and, and prove that indeed uh, that the, the Jewish world was included in that word all ungodliness. And so uh, he returns to that theme in verse 9, or it's continuing in that theme. Are we better than they? That is... Are we Jews better than those Gentiles? Uh, not at all. We will, we will come under the sweep of the same judgment as do Gentiles. For we have previously charged, that is, I've been telling you over and over and over again, that uh, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, guys, um, there is, I, I'm going to make a big to-do tonight about one little preposition uh, it is the Greek word hupo. Um, 
uh, there is a great deal uh, to be, a, a great deal of print, a great deal of uh, numerous books have been written over that preposition. It is translated with the, uh, the English word under. Uh, for they are all under sin. It's a, it's a word, uh, you know, we find it a lot in the word uh, hypodermic needles. You know, a hypodermic needle is something that goes under the skin, you know. Well, it just simply, hypo, well, hupo means under. Um, and he is suggesting that all, both Greek and Jew, are under sin. According to the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, every human being, is in one of two positions. He is either under sin or he is under grace. Um, the teaching of the New Testament gang makes it very clear in the description of man in describing them in terms of which kingdom they belong to. You know, it is... Uh, it continues to amaze me, and I think you too, um, how people understand the gospel uh, to be that which suggests that if you live a good life, that all will be fine with, uh, with you in the end. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there are a lot of people who live good lives, but they belong to the wrong kingdom. They are in the wrong kingdom. Now, um, what Paul states in verse 9 is that all, both Jew and Gentile, are by nature under sin. And as shocking as this might be for some of you, uh, what that would, one of the things that it would suggest is that children are not born innocent, uh, having been corrupted by the culture. That's a, that's a Jean-Jacques Rousseau position, but it's certainly not a biblical position. As a result of the fall recorded in Genesis chapter 3, ladies and gentlemen, the condition of all men is that they are under sin, until they are transferred from one kingdom to the other. Now, that's where I want to spend a little bit of my time tonight. Because here's where, uh, and, and guys, if you like a theological stuff, you're going to get one tonight. You're going to get a couple, you know. So, um, you know, we do that here. We don't do it much on Sunday mornings because people want to know, you know, um, different things on Sunday mornings. But uh, here, knowing the the theological inquisitiveness of this group and the theological acumen of this group, I feel like I can get away with certain things. Gang, um, most Christian um, theology includes a doctrine, uh, notice total depravity. Uh, there's a lot of discussion between uh, this camp and that camp, but this, this, this one is one that most people agree about, at least in part. Um, total depravity. Uh, I have a sister... And uh, she had her first baby when she was, gosh, she was real young. I, I think she was 20 when she had my first niece. And um, she was working at the time, and so my mother ended up uh, caring for the child, um, my niece, uh, a good deal. And I was still at home. I guess I, guess I was in the 10th grade or so when, uh, when uh, my uh, niece was born. And um, so Cindy would come over, and, you know, she loved Uncle Jimmy. 
And I, I, I used to love to play with Cindy and, you know, be the big uncle. Well, um, um, and I was close to her, and then I went off to, you know, I guess I forget exactly where I was. I guess it was in college. But, um, uh, you know, graduated, got a job with Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble moved us to Fort Lauderdale. We became Christians and, and uh, worked two more years, and, and then I went off to seminary. And, and I began to learn some things, you know, some, um, some theological stuff, you know. And, and uh, so I wouldn't, did I ever tell you the time where when, I, when Susan and I first became a Christian, <laughs> This is awful. Um, uh, and my mother and daddy came down to visit for the first time. Yeah, I told you that. I, I, I told you that, but I didn't tell her. I didn't tell everybody. I mean, Sherry knows about this. Uh, I've told Sherry some of my dark secrets. Um, well, uh, we had been Christians about four months, and my mother and daddy came down to see us. And, you know, we were living in Miami. Well, we were living in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, we went out to Miami, Miami to pick them up, and uh, they were going to spend three days with us, or maybe four days. Well, the last three days of their visit, or maybe the last two days, my mother spent the last two days of her visit locked in the bedroom, the second bedroom in the apartment, wouldn't come out. <laughs> because I, I uh, was trying to make sure that she was saved like I was. Uh, anyway, so uh, she didn't receive that real, uh, real sweetly. And, uh, you know, of course, I handled myself perfectly, as you would guess. Um, but my mother really did lock herself, wouldn't come out. We finally, you know, she finally came out to, you know, go to the airport. That was less, oh, that was bad. Anyway, but my next mistake was I learned all these wonderful doctrines and I came home to see my, uh, you know, the visit and ran into my sister and my niece, my niece, um, you know, Cindy. And I told my sister that my niece was totally depraved. <laughs> and my sister... <laughs> not receiving that real sweetly, looked at me and said, my daughter is deprived of nothing. <laughs> and I said, wait, 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 wait. I didn't say deprived with an I. I said depraved. There's a, there's a vast difference in those two words. Depravity, depravity. Depravity, total depravity, has to do with the, the impact that was made by the fall of Genesis 3. Now, gang, uh, there's really two, two things that you've got to get straight here, and one of them is the thing that Paul has stated right here in 3.9, is that both Greek and Jew are all under sin. That, of course, is the universality um, of the fall. That is, the fall affected everybody. Nobody disagrees with that. Um, no Protestant disagrees. Not even the Roman Catholic Church disagrees with that. In fact, if you would like to have a nice, another name for this, it's called original sin. Um, you've heard that thing, you know, that you were, you know, and you got credit for Adam's sin, didn't you? You heard about that. Um, well, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, there are some that disagree with that, and they were pronounced as heretics in about 415, um, uh, because what, what, well, let, 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 me, let me kind of take a side road here. Uh, th there are three views, really, as to the impact of the fall. The first one was, was uh, uh, proposed by a guy by the name of Pelagius, um, and perhaps you've heard of Pelagianism, well, Pelagianism uh, is a real minority position, but it does exist today. But Mr. Pelagius was denounced as a heretic 
in 415 AD. Uh, that, that might be not, it's in the 5th century someplace. But Pelagius basically said that the fall had no impact on anybody except Adam. And it, the, the fall was a bad thing, and it hurt, it hurt Adam very badly, but it didn't hurt anybody else. And he was pronounced a heretic and kicked out of the church. But uh, those who uh, wouldn't buy into Augustinianism, which I'll tell you about in just a second, you've heard of St. Augustine, that's really the third position, had somewhat of a middle position, which is called either semi-Pelagianism or semi-Augustinianism, which whatever you want to, however, is your glass half empty or half full. Uh, it was either semi-Pelagianism or semi-Augustinianism. It didn't matter. But it's a, it's a position in between these two. Um, and, and what uh, semi-Pelagianism is basically saying that the fall really did affect everyone, and that uh, the, the impact of that was that uh, everyone was uh, certainly became a sinner and very sick in sin. Augustine uh, said that the fall had a greater impact than that. In fact, most people will agree over the language. They will not agree over the application of the language. Um, because what, what total depravity says is that indeed everyone was affected and the, the extent of the impact was that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Now, my point is, most people will agree with this language because they find it in the Bible. Like in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, um, they find, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And they'll agree that indeed the unregenerate man is dead in his trespasses and sins, but then they go on uh, to come into a semi-Pelagian view and um, they redefine the word. But that's not really my point tonight. I just want you to understand that Paul is saying that all uh, Greek and Jew are under sin. You were born into this world ill-prepared to leave it. You are by nature, says Paul in Ephesians 2, you are by nature <coughs> children of wrath. And so you've got to get a new nature. <laughs> but his point here is that everybody, whether you're a Greek or a Gentile, which most of you are, you are under sin. You're, you're, you're conditioned by nature. Now, now, if you're born again, you have a super nature. But uh, in your natural state, in the one that you had when you first broke the womb, and your children too, uh, they are under sin. Now, guys, that's, um, <clears throat> that's just a little bit about what... What he, I think he's suggesting when he uses that language that he's under sin. But after that, he then goes on to produce a list of statements from the Psalms and from the prophets to prove his point. That, that is, he's going to prove verse 9. And all those quotes that you see under there um, are taken from the Psalms and the, and the prophets. Those are nothing more than Paul proving that point. And and it's interesting what Paul is doing because nothing is so impressive to the Jew as the Old Testament. I mean, they, they believe that part of the, the book. And so Paul is proving his point by quoting from their book. But I do think it's interesting, the methodology that Paul uses. He is, he's proving his point by, by using the Scriptures. You've got to do that too. One of the things that I said this weekend um, is to parents is... You, you know, Mom and Daddy, it is not enough 
for you to adopt a position that you're not going to do that because daddy said so there may be occasions where daddy said so is is needed you know whether we buy a new car or not a new car but when it comes to moral decisions you better be able to root them and found them and ground them in the word you better be able to say this is our position and here's why um, mommy and daddy stand for this because of this we found or this we know to be taught in the scriptures that's what paul's doing here he's making his, making his point he said and he says now watch me prove this as he does um from the old testament from uh, the psalms and, and, and a couple of prophetic statements too he quotes before we look at it um specifically at the list that he makes here these old testament quotes let me make a couple of a couple of three general observations um about this little section from uh, 10 to 18. One of the things that I, th I think you should note is the tragic blindness of the Jews with regards to their own book. You know, Jesus, if you've got, a, if you've got your Bible open, <clears throat> find John 5 real fast. There's several of these statements. I've got five listed here, but we'll only look at one. John 5. Um, verse 39, John 5, 39. Um, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience and he says in verse 39, you search the scriptures. Now what is the Jew searching? He didn't have a New Testament. He's searching an Old Testament. He's searching, he's searching the Bible and for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. Do you see what, what Jesus is saying to his audience? You're studying your Bibles and you've missed the whole point. You keep studying the thing, that's real good, folks, but you hadn't understood anything. It, it, what I think you find again and again and again, here's another example, um, is, is blindness on the part of the Jewish nation in regards to their own book. They read it. Um, and they still read it, ladies and gentlemen, and I think it's true that they boast in the book. I mean, they, they love the Old Testament. They're proud that they, I mean, if you, I keep making, maybe I'm not making it, uh, advertisements, I promise. But you go to the Wailing Wall, and we're going to Israel next year is what my point. Uh, you go to the Wailing Wall, and you'll hear some sounds that you've never heard before in your life. And the women can't get down in the, in the place where the men can get, and they stand behind this, this fence that I guess the, the nation of Israel has put up. And they stand behind the fence, and they, they make this, this chirping sound. I don't know what else to Something like that. But, it, you know, I'm, I don't do it well. Do, do you remember that, Sherry? I mean, it was the strangest thing. I don't, I don't know how a woman does that. Uh, it, it was real strange. But anyway, they're watching these bar mitzvahs that are taking place down beneath them, and, and there's about 18 of them going on at the same time. And um, they're, they're, they've got these bars, it looks something like this, that's a little bit longer, and they don't have plexiglass, but you know, they're just this bench thing, and the little boy who is being bar mitzvahed comes across the, 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 the wailing wall in this huge open area. Well, it's all paved, you know, and, and from over there somewhere, the little boy comes out to be bar mitzvahs, and he's carrying this thing. 
You know, it's huge, big old thing. And it's a scroll, and they all look different. They all got their own, you know, you go to this thing, and they, you know, little four foot one carrying this thing, it's six foot three, and you know, they, they come stumbling over to the desk, you know, and plop it down. And you know what that is, don't you? It's the Torah. They boast in that thing. They love that thing. They, they read it. They preach it. They teach it. They bar mitzvah their kids by it. Still don't understand it. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? It just always impresses me. Um, one other kind of general observation. Golly gee. Um, I, I've, already, I've already put this word up there, the universality of sin. But... Um, I just wanted you to know, notice, something about what Paul does. He does it twice down there, and I just think you need to see it. Um, he says, there is none righteous. But that's not enough for Paul. To make it even far more emphatic, he says, no, not one. <laughs> Look, and he does that, he does that again in, in verse 12. There is none who does good. No, not one. I mean, it would be enough. I mean, we all know what the word none means, don't we? There is none righteous. Not one. No, not one. I mean, he goes out of his way to be emphatic that sin is universal without a single exception. Paul makes that point, and he wants to make sure, um, being the, the wonderful teacher that he is, he makes sure that we all understand at least that. Everybody. Everybody is under sin. In their natural state. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. Kingdom of sin, a kingdom of grace. One of the two. And then one other thing. Uh, well, actually, I got two. Um, I, I just want to point this out in the, in the evangelical community because, guys, listen to me, particularly if you are if you are. If you're eager to reach your neighbors for Christ, um, do you notice now, now Paul? When I the, the reason I said that 321 is the fun stuff, and we'll see that in the fall, guys. I love that bot now. But as Paul begins to proclaim the gospel, I want you to notice what Paul thinks is preparational for the gospel. Do you see what he's done? The thing that he wants to make sure that everybody understands before he begins to even end at a, at a solution is you've got to be convinced that you're a sinner. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is being preached today, not like that. I mean, first and foremost, Jesus is a savior from sin. He's not a celestial counselor. He's not an eternal good friend. Um, he's not uh, a comforter or you walk with. Now, he does do those things. But Jesus Christ did not leave his home in glory, ladies and gentlemen, to be your friend. He left his home in glory to save you from sin. Now, what I want to ask you is, when you're sharing the gospel, do you do the same thing? Because that's what Paul says was preparational before anybody else, before they'd ever be ready to hear 
something that is marvelously, richly, eternally good. You've got to hear this verse. You've got to understand. You are sinful. Don't tell people that, Jimmy. Tell them, tell them how they can be happy. Tell them how they can get out of their depression. Tell them that he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. Tell them that. Address some felt need, Jimmy. I, all I can tell you is, ladies and gentlemen, that might be all wonderful for us, but when Paul got ready to preach the gospel, he did this first. And I don't know about you, but I, for one, I'll go with Paul. One other observation. As you read this list, as we, as we will begin to read this list, um, it goes from bad to worse. Um, and and it, when you finally get to the end, um, really the summation of it all is there is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you read it with the kind of uh, existential enjoyment that I think is intended, um, you begin to wonder, is there any hope? And, and I, I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that it seems that the people who have the greatest grasp of and the greatest appreciation for, the greatest devotion to grace, the greatest consecration to Christ, have been those whose hearts are filled with the greatest sense of gratitude for deliverance from sin. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a biblical truism. It is taught in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus is dealing with Simon and the lady breaks through and, she sa and he says, He who has been forgiven much loves much. So now, play a little game with me. The scripture doesn't teach this, or doesn't say this, but I think we can do it. So that means that those who love little are not particularly convinced that they've been forgiven but a little. But those who are gripped from that from which they have been delivered, those who understand the depths and the ravages of sin on us, we're the ones. We're the ones who love much. Because we know that our salvation is not just a, oh yeah, well, somebody stuck a ticket to heaven in my pocket and sprayed me with a coat of asbestos. Now I'm on my way to glory. No, ladies and gentlemen, we've been delivered from sin. And that, I think, is the impact of what Paul does here. He is going to make sure that people understand the alienation that sin has wrought in all of us before we, count, before we found Christ. Now, look at the text with me, uh, the text themselves. The verses 10 through 12, which is really, I'm not even sure we're going to get through that. Verses 10 through 12 are quotations from Psalm 14, Psalm 51. Um, and then verse 13 is out of Psalm 5, and verse 14 is out of Psalm 10, and verses 15 through 17 are a quote from Isaiah 59. So uh, for your information, you could have found that out in your, the, the uh, uh, margins of your Bibles. But I, um, in verses 10 through 12, 
let's see what happens. Let's see what Paul does uh, in verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Um, all right, stop right there with me. <laughs> because what I want to suggest that Paul has done in verses 10 and 11 is to give you a description of the person. That is, um, there is no righteousness about him. There is no understanding. This is, this is a description of who he is, what he's like. And then he goes on in verse 12 to tell you the result of that. They have all turned aside. They have become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. As a result of no righteousness, no understanding, um, no seeking, here's what they do. Gang, that's always the way it is in the Bible. The Bible always presents what you're like before it tells you or describes what you do. That is, we are before we do. We are before we work. We are before we perform. There is being that precedes doing. Always the case, ladies and gentlemen. It always must be that way. Gang, before anything, before anybody should start serving Jesus, you've got to be something, you know? Because doing flows out of being. That is a biblical principle. And when there's no doing, then you've got to wonder if there's any being, you know? But the being always precedes the doing. You are before you do. Now, let's look at the first part. There is none righteous, no, not one. I want to suggest to you that if you want to understand what Paul has in mind, and this is, I'm sure you could do it a, a, a several different ways, but I want to give you what I think is a definition of righteousness. Let me read it to you. Um, I'm going to have to read, uh, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, guys, what I, what I want to suggest to you, if you want a definition of righteousness, there it is. Now, that's not what the, the Matthew 22 says. I'm just suggesting, in terms of trying to define it, there's a good definition. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then Paul comes and says, there's nobody who does that. There's none righteous. No, not one. Gang, what I'm suggesting is that as the result of the fall, every man is missing, is lacking um, the original righteousness that was possessed by Adam and which was lost in the fall and which God demands of all of us. The demand that God makes on all of us is possessed by none of us. In, in the unregenerate, fallen, natural state, the demands of God are not met by any of us. Um, 
Um, then, I guess the next thing that Paul says is that there is none who understand. There are none who are in possession of wisdom. And, um, and, and there's a sense in which you can say, ladies and gentlemen, that the essence of sin is, is, is folly, um, foolishness. Remember Psalm 14, 1 that says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, the essence of sin is folly, foolishness, no wisdom. And there are none who are in possession of that. Um, <clears throat> they cannot apprehend spiritual truth. And very frankly, they don't see it as a very big deal. And even to go a step further, they think you're a bunch of morons. What are you doing here on Wednesday night? You should be playing soccer. I want to study that Bible stuff. Uh, I'm not sure where I should start. The third stop. The third thing is that is said um, is that there is none who seeks after God. Um, let me say this, and, and I guess we'll stop with this. Um, I think some people would say, Paul, you've gone too far there. You've gone too far to say that there is none who seek after God. Why, I know people in my family. I've got my, 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 my brother-in-law on my cousin's side uh, uh, who is uh, married to my sister's niece, um, which uh, is my father's third cousin. I know um, that, uh, uh, that they're, you know, they haven't found a place of worship, uh, and they're not, they're not, they're not really in their, um, uh, you know, he's addicted to uh, pain-killing drugs, but he's really seeking after God. I just want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that the Bible says in clear English, in a matter of seven words, there is none who seeks after God. Now, either you're right or they're right, or this is right. Now, guys, think of it like this. Think of it like this. Uh, Genesis 3, um, serpent has just uh, bewitched Eve and given to Adam, and they've both fallen. What happens? Immediately upon eating that apple, what then happens? I know what happens. Everybody knows, don't we? Uh, Adam uh, looks at Eve and says, hey, here's a fine mess you've got me into. We're in trouble now. We're in trouble with the, with the big boy. We're going to have to do something about this. I, I'm telling you, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to get together as a family, and we're going to display repentance, and we're going to go seek God, and we're going to say to him, God, we never should have done that. We're so terribly sorry. We're going to offer a sacrifice of praise. We're going to sing hymns. We're going to get, we're, we're going to get ourselves right because, oh, I'm here, I'm here to tell you, we're, we're going to have to make this right because, you know, we've sinned against God. Is that what happened? Of course not. They run, they hide, they cover themselves with fig leaves. Now tell me, on that occasion, who sought whom? <laughs> and then I ask you, when did it change? It hasn't changed. I say this to you, ladies and gentlemen, with this real quick. If a man is seeking God, it is because God has first sought him. We love because we've first been loved. Meetings, choir, it's time to head on out.
close this with prayer. <clears throat> Our Father, we love your, your word. We love the privilege of getting to study it and, and the uh, opportunity of hopefully getting to know you better as we see what is written and written there because the people who wrote it were inspired by the Holy Ghost to write it. And I pray, Father, that you will uh, illumine us as we study it. We want to think just like it tells us to think. We want to have our minds conform to it. And I pray, Father, that as we do, we will discover how much richer is life, how much fuller is our walk with Christ, how much more joy we've discovered as we become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night. Terry Bartley, I need to see you.